Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we hear his word. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you now, and we thank you for this time. We ask now that your Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear, give us hearts to obey, minds to hold on to and embrace what you're telling us to do, how to live, how to please you. And Father, show us the gospel. Show it to us clearly. Help us to have a new confidence in what Christ has done for us. and Help us to be more prepared going out into a world that has no care, no worship, no regard for your Son, Christ. Speak to us now, Lord. We give this time to you, and we thank you for it. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Good preparedness can take away fear and save lives. Good preparedness, it can reduce fear and take it away and save lives. So ask anyone here who's served in the military or in your family, preparation that saved their lives, soldiers, those rations, the MREs that they would eat, the parachute to jump out of an aircraft, the ammunition for their weapons, they had to be prepared to fight. Not as intense, but equally as as fearful for me growing up, the preparation of a good mechanical pencil on a test. You know what this was like, don't you? I do. I'm sitting there, I'm about to take a test in school, and I'm writing, and all of a sudden I break the end of my mechanical pencil, and I click it, and nothing happens. And I get this burst of adrenaline, this fear, because I don't have any other pencils. But then I shake it, and I hear another piece of lead in there, that graphite, and I keep shaking around until I click it, and it works again, and I go back to writing. My fears are relieved because somebody, not me, but the manufacturer of that mechanical pencil had enough foresight to anticipate the lead's going to run out. You're going to need more to keep going. But even then, I'd be writing on the test, and my eraser would pop off, and then all the lead would fly out. So the really prepared students would have a pencil that works well and an eraser on hand. You know what this is like, don't you? Uh, Some of us uh, will admit that things get miserable when we're not prepared. Others of us hate to prepare, though. We hate to get things squared away because we like to just go with the flow, figure it out on the fly. But none of us, if we're honest, none of us enjoy the feeling of being unprepared when it really matters. So when does it matter for a Christian? When is a Christian supposed to be prepared? Does it matter for them? And if so, how do they get prepared? What are they even preparing for? This is the type of question that Peter is answering. In the passage that we're going to look at today, the Apostle Peter is telling you and me, he told the Christians in the day he was writing, he's telling us to prepare and get ready to face a world even family, and even our own doubts that would attack the faith that we hold on to. So I would invite you this morning to go with me in your Bible to uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to see what Peter tells us to do to prepare, why it matters, how it takes away fear. 1 Peter chapter 3, this is page 1016 in the Bible in front of you. And as we've been looking at this letter, 1 Peter, just by way of context, he's been preparing Christians to stand firm in suffering. Everything he says is to help them stand firm. He wants them to be sojourners on their way to heaven who suffer well. The purpose of the entire letter is given there at the end, chapter 5, verse 12. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. And he's been calling their attention to different things. He's been calling them to prepare already. In chapter 1, verse 13, he said, prepare your minds for action. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, which we haven't gotten there yet, he's going to again call them to prepare and take arms to be prepared. But here in this section, he's going to focus in and he's going to give exquisite, perfect instruction for how a Christian prepares. 
It's not Peter's idea. This is the Holy Spirit writing and speaking through him. Let's, let's listen to God's word. 1 Peter 3, verses 13, down to the end of the chapter, verse 22. Read along with me. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels authorities and powers having been subjected to him. So what's the main idea of what Peter just said? If you wanted to capture it in one sentence, that central thought, the main idea would be this. Obedient Christians make preparation and ready themselves to suffer well. Obedient Christians make preparation and ready themselves to suffer well. Namely, they're suffering well by bearing a righteous witness for Christ. We know this precisely because the godly have always suffered. The New Testament tells us all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a fact. My prayer this morning for us, my prayer is that that we would trust and understand the things that help and hinder us from suffering well. That we would examine our level of preparedness to engage society that we sojourn in, and that we would see how God is glorified through a, a faithful proclamation of the truth defended against attack. To do that, we're going to look at this passage, and to look at the passage, three questions this morning, three questions we're going to hang all of our thoughts on. First question, what hinders your Christian witness? What hinders your Christian witness? Second question, what helps your Christian witness? And the third question, when is it worth it? When is it worth it? So those three questions are going to drive us into the passage here. Structurally, verses 13 through 17 are a natural unit, and then verses 18 through 22, that's another unit. Most Bibles have a paragraph break right there. And this morning, what we're going to do, those first two questions, what hinders and what helps, those are going to help us understand verses 13 to 17. And then that question, when is it worth it? It's the outcome. Is it really worth it? That's going to help us understand verses 18 through 22. So, to begin this morning, that first question, what hinders righteous witness? And let's make it real for a second. Before we even look at their context in the first century, get your objection out on the table and answer this question. What keeps you from sharing your faith with a non-believer? What's your biggest fear? What, what's your biggest fear? Don't just think about it and let it go by. Jot it down in your notes at the top of your page. If you don't have notes right now, I want you to whisper it to the person next to you. What is seemingly your biggest fear in talking and sharing faith with a non-believer? Go ahead. What's your biggest fear? 
we have to get our objections out on the table for this passage to make sense to us so that we don't just look at it as abstract information and agree with it. Because even the demons can agree with things in Scripture and not live any different. Here's the beauty of, of this passage. The things that hinder our evangelism, our witness, whatever you just wrote down, whatever you just whispered to yourself or to somebody near you, the answer to that objection, that fear, is met in this passage. Isn't it true that we're often afraid of either, A, what people say and do to us, B, what we're going to say to them, maybe we're going to leave something out or we're not going to say it right, or C, we're afraid of the outcome, the results, that we're going to start a fight or an argument, or they're going to think ill of us, that fear of man. Well, that's those are the hindrances right here in this passage. So look with me. Look at these hindrances. The first hindrance is a fear of man. This is why in verse 13, Peter says, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous, if you're eager, you're devoted to what's good? He's, he's referring back to what he just talked about. If you live out Psalm 34 and you're speaking peace and you're, you're guarding your tongue and you're living righteously with others, you don't need to have fear and a paranoia that everyone's out to get you. He's saying generally if you pursue good, you're out of harm's way, but, but there is an exception, and persecution does come to a Christian. So there in verse 14, notice the language of verse 14 that exposes this fear of man. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Throughout this letter, Peter has said, don't fear man. God is the only one to fear. So chapter 1, verse 17, he said that we fear the one who is our judge. He's the only one that we live in a reverent fear to because he judges impartially. Conduct yourselves with fear. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, we get another command not to fear. We obey and submit to the governing authorities, but we never fear the emperor. We never fear those in authority in our culture. We only fear God. Chapter 2, verse 17 tells us that. But why is it that Christians in Peter's day, why would they be afraid? What would they have to fear? Well, think about it. They had Roman mythology. They had traditional Jewish beliefs and thought. They had all these philosophies of the day. They had Epicureanism. They had Plato and Aristotle and their thoughts combined, this Platonic thinking. There were Stoics of the day. There were all these well-reasoned philosophies and established gods. A Christian might look at all that and think, man, everybody seems to have an answer. Everybody seems to have something well-established a good story, a good reason. And they might be afraid to engage with the culture. But Peter is writing here, and he's exposing that fear, and he says at the end of verse 14, have no fear of them. Don't be afraid of them. Have no fear of man. In Isaiah 2.22, it says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? The second fear that Peter exposes is a fear of not knowing what to say. Did you see that in verse 15 there? This is the classic verse for apologetics. Verse 15 exposes the fear of not knowing what to say. Verse 15, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That word for prepared, it's an adjective. It means to have something ready at hand, a readiness. Like if you're, if you're getting ready to receive someone, you're going to host them in your home. They're going to stay with you and have lodging. If you like books and movies like Lord of the Rings, it's, it's Frodo and Sam when they're given the bread, the Limbus bread. They were prepared. One bite would satisfy a man for a day. It would strengthen them for their journey. Peter is calling Christians to be prepared 
So more on that in a second when we answer the question, what helps us? But what hinders us is that fear that we're not prepared, that we don't know what to say, that we're going to leave something out when we engage with a non-believer. And that fear is exposed here. And the beginning of verse 15 is so interesting. Did you see what comes in between fear of man at the end of verse 14 and that preparation language there in verse 15? Do you see what comes between that? It says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. In other words, sanctify Christ, not that you make him holy, but that you make in your heart the reality of who he is come to bear on you. He's the only ultimate Lord. He's the only one to fear. So part of your fears of not knowing what to say, first, you should fear before the Lord and take that fear to the Lord before you worry about the fear out there. What is it that they're supposed to have ready at hand? It's reasons. It's hope. A winsome apologia, a defense of the gospel. But more on that in a second when we talk about what helps us. There's a third fear. So there's, there's a fear of what somebody's going to say to us. There's a fear of what we're going to say back to them. And then there's that third hindrance, the fear of the outcome. The fear of the outcome. Notice there in verse 17. Verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Sometimes it's God's will that you have a conversation with somebody and you seem to be on the receiving end of suffering. It doesn't go well. As verse 16 says, you're slandered or reviled. But I like how the end of verse 15 shows that fear and exposes it because when it says at the end of 15, When we give a reason for the hope in us, we do it gently and respectfully. That's important. We should fear the outcome if we're not people who speak gently and kindly and respectfully. Consider how gentleness and respect would normally diffuse a salty outcome in a conversation. Consider that. A lack of respect of where the other person's coming from or or interrupting them, being ignorant of their perspective, The absence of gentleness, instead there's a harshness, a forcefulness, a shortness to your words, maybe even an arrogance or an overconfidence, getting a temper or being impatient with those we speak with. If you have the fear that it's not going to go well when you talk to someone and you're going to start trouble, heed the end of verse 15 here. But again, that's getting into what helps. So let's just go ahead and move in. What does help us? If what hinders us is fear, different types of fear, the second question we're answering from this passage is what helps us? What helps our witness? Three things as well. Those three fears are all met by three different truths that correspond to them. So, that first fear, fear of man, what helps us to counter that is truth that's trusted in truth that's trusted in. Where do we get that? We get that in verse 13. We trust the truth that, generally speaking, we're not in harm's way when we're zealous and eager for good. Generally. Yes, persecution still comes, which is why verse 14 is there. We trust the truth that even if we suffer, it's actually an opportunity for blessing. Even if we suffer. And we trust verse 17 that it, it It's God's will for the righteous to suffer and bear witness. And this has to be truth that is embraced. It's not enough to just believe kind of generally floating around in the back of your mind, yeah, God's, he's pretty good, and yeah, it's a good thing if I share my faith every once in a while. Christians, God is calling you to embrace this truth that you are blessed when you enter into a conversation where somebody attacks the truth you believe. You are blessed in those situations. So don't fear them. Trust the good theology that's right there in verse 14 that you're blessed. You don't need to fear them. There's another truth that counters that fear of what we would say, and that's, secondly, there's a truth here 
truth that is clearly prepared to share. Truth that's clearly prepared to share. In verse 15 again, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. So that word for give a defense or give an answer, this is where we get that word apologetics. The word is apologia in the original. So you could think courtroom type language, being well-informed to give reasons. But here, it's not necessarily that formal. In other words, the way we give an answer and a defense to anyone who asks us is not that we use somebody else's reasonings. We use our own sensible language. To illustrate this, I don't need to go to my own life or your life. We can just go back to the life of David. You remember when David was about to fight Goliath? And he was given something that seemed articulate and ornate and powerful, but it really didn't help, his armor. Remember that? He tries on the armor, and it's heavy, and it's thick. To anyone else, it would have seemed like that's what he needs. And David tries them on, and he says, I can't fight with these. I haven't, I haven't tested them. I can't, I can't move around in these. These don't help. So instead, he takes what he's familiar with, that sling and those stones. Christian, are you prepared to go into battle and talk with a non-believer? You're not trying to kill them, but you are, in a sense, trying to kill any argument and lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ. You want to take that captive. If we're going to be prepared and give an answer and give a defense, we need to have tested answers where we have practiced them in some sense. And they don't have to look spectacular and elaborate. You don't have to take some apologetics class, although we had a great Sunday school class last semester. You need to be able to clearly share the hope of the gospel. Notice I didn't say articulately share. There's a difference. Impressing people with your words, being so articulate, it's like that armor that David couldn't use that. There's a difference. Clarity. Peter knows what clarity is all about. He clearly reviled those who reviled him when he denied Christ. Paul was clear on the opposite side of it for for good reasons. Paul was clear when he came to the Corinthian church. He said, first importance, first importance of what I delivered to you, that Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. He was buried and he was raised again according to the scriptures. He was clear. That's what we're called to hear. That fear that we have, we don't know what we're going to say. Well, it's met by this call. God's word is telling us, be prepared to make a defense. And remember, this is defensive. It's not necessarily offensive. We're not going out there and grabbing people by the the collar and saying, listen up, I have something I've got to say. We're forceful that way. Did you see that? It says the occasion for this is when somebody asks you. So you might be thinking what I often think. Okay, I'm off the hook because people don't really ask me this much. But what does it say about your life and even your relationship with non-believers if people are not asking you about your faith? What kind of proximity do you have with those who don't follow Christ if you're never getting asked? Don't celebrate the fact that nobody's asking you because the scriptures assume that you're going to be asked. Don't isolate yourself. But how do we apply this? How do we do this? Like we said earlier, you don't have to sign up for an apologetics class, although that can be helpful and you should take advantage of it. I like how one one pastor said it this way. He said, absorb scripture and take it in daily and meditate on it. Let it sink into your mind, your very soul. And then on the other hand, attentively listen to secular friends and family and even the culture. How are they objecting to the faith? What is it that offends them or seems like nonsense to them? And what is it that resonates with them? Looking for answers to the issues that we dialogue about, that we read about. 
that we hear in Christian teaching like this. We gather these things up, and we, we craft out some kind of morsel of truth that we can prepare to share to others. This means, though, that we have to rid ourselves and avoid that mere subjective thinking. Uh, what Jesus is for me, that kind of language. This is what Jesus does for me. This is who he is to me. You need to make sure that the things that you share are true for every Christian. It's truth that every Christian could affirm. There's a few questions that are asked in every culture that if you're wondering, well, I don't know how to prepare. This seems kind of abstract. Where do I begin? Ravi Zacharias mentions this often. Every culture is asking about the origin of things. Where did we come from? The meaning of life. Morality. Why is there good and evil? Why do bad things happen? And our destiny. Where are we headed? What's our hope? The origin, morality, meaning, destiny. Every culture is asking this. So as a Christian, you should already be prepared to see how your hope in the gospel, your hope in what Jesus has done, meets all those questions. And yes, there are questions that are new in every culture, so they seem. Some new questions seem really basic, like, what's the hope of being born a man or a woman? Why can't my gender just be fluid, whatever I want it to be? We should be Christians who are prepared to give a reason for our hope. Jesus said, from the beginning, God created them male and female. Jesus is the answer to all the questions culture asks you. Over lunch today, you might want to try this out. On a fellow Christian, ask them a reason for the hope that they have. And if you're a Christian speaking, don't worry about sounding so theologically high-minded and articulate. Just practice sharing in, pr- in plain, street-level language without all the churchy words what your hope is in. So instead of saying like, yeah, substitutionary atonement and Christ did, pause and say something like, Christ died for me. Theological language is not bad, but Peter here is calling for a hope shared to people who ask you. So if the person asking you hasn't been in church a day in their life, we want to use language that they can understand. One other way we can apply this is just simply we want to be prepared because we have doubts, don't we? We talked about this in our apologetics class earlier that doubts are alternative beliefs and it says be ready, prepare to give an answer to anyone who asks you. What if the person asking you the question is yourself? We're a very analytical culture, psychological culture, When you ask yourself a question about faith or the Bible or the scriptures and you can't answer it, that's showing you an area where you you then need to be prepared. If you need help with this, talk to your fellow Christians. This is why we are in a body together. You don't have to have all the answers yourself. Anyone who is a member has answered these questions when, when pastors, deacons, when they ask you, you know, what's the gospel? Can you share it with me? You've all done this if you're a member of this church. And what Peter is saying, continue to do this. Continue to be prepared. Be ready. But there's a third thing that helps. Not only truth that's embraced and truth that's prepared to share, there's a third thing, truth that is graciously held on to. We see that at the end of verse 15. Those key words again. Do this with gentleness and respect having a good conscience. So this is the truth spoken in love. It's a a hope-filled grace. It's truth that doesn't need your forcefulness to make it true. Truth that it doesn't need your harshness to somehow defend it. There's a famous quote by Charles Spurgeon, a lion quote on caging the lion. Some of you might have heard this. It's fitting for this. He said, a great many learned men are defending the gospel. And no doubt, this is a very proper and right thing to do. But suppose that a number of persons were 
taken into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. Here comes all the soldiers to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them that if they wouldn't object and feel that it was too humbling for them, that they should kindly stand back, open the door, and let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he would take care of himself. The lion of the tribe of Judah will soon drive away his adversaries. Therefore, the reasons that we have and are prepared to share are important, our reasonings, but they're not ultimate. We're giving reasons for objective truth, right? The hope of the gospel, the resurrection, that's objective truth. So the power is not in your reasons, but you're still called to have reasons. The power of the gospel, it's, it's not power to those who see it as foolishness, but it's power to those who are being saved. It's power for salvation for them. Shame is going to come to others indirectly by them not believing the truth. It doesn't need to come from your mouth when you shame them if you think, I'm just out there winning arguments. He doesn't say you're winning arguments. He says you're giving a defense, reasons for hope to anyone who asks you. So share your hope, Christians. Let all your fears and hindrances be set aside. Take on these things that help you, the truth, spoken rightly, spoken graciously. That gentleness that you speak with is going to draw someone out to consider the truth. They may disagree with you, but they may be shocked that you're so gentle about the disagreement. The culture's going to scratch their head on that one. And even if they walk away and they revile you and make fun of you and mock you for what you believe, if you did it gently and respectfully when you talk to them, you can have a clear conscience before the Lord. So those were hindrances and helps, but what what do we do with all this? Is this just an intellectual exercise? Let's identify the helps, the hindrances. Is this worth it? What's going to actually motivate you to go prepare when you're not sitting, listening now? When do we do this? When do we share? When are we righteous witnesses before the Lord? Well, that's what this entire second section of the passage is about. Verses 18 to 22. So that third question when is it worth it? That's what he's answering here. So Peter is going to give three examples. He's going to give the example of Christ during his earthly ministry. He's going to give a past example of of Christ before his incarnation. And then he's going to speed us up to the present and give a present example of righteous witnesses when he's talking about baptism. So let's look at these for a moment. Verse 18 the first example given. It's worth it because of verse 18. It says there, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That's our objective hope. That's why we don't fear man. This is the truth that we believe and embrace. This is a substitutionary atonement. In our place, condemned, he stood. This is Christ's suffering once. It's not like all the other Old Testament sacrifices. need to happen again and again every year. He suffered once for sins. The righteous, and the words in between show that there's an exchange, the righteous for the unrighteous, and then the result of it all, that he brings us to God. This is the good news. This is what we hope in. So the first example Peter gives from the faithful witness of Christ, he's showing us the outcome. It's worth it. Look at what happened to Christ being a faithful witness in the midst of hostility. It brought you to God. If you're a non-believer right now, if you don't follow Christ, maybe you, you know, on the inside, you kind of champion the fact that you've intimidated a Christian sometime or that that you've asked them a question they don't know how to answer? Well, those questions that a Christian couldn't answer or they felt intimidated about, why don't you take that question to Christ himself? 
because every Christian, although they might not be able to answer all the apologetic questions that come at them, this is the one question they can answer. That Christ died for them, the righteous for the unrighteous. In Romans one twenty three, when it says, we exchange the glory of God for the created things, here's the undoing of that. Our wickedness and sin was exchanged for Christ's righteousness here. And we've been brought near to God. We have fellowship with him right now. One day we'll have fellowship unhindered, no sin, face to face with the Lord. But right now we've been brought near to God. So this is the good news. So non-believer, listen to this. If you want to be brought near to God safely, it has to be this way. You will be brought near to God in judgment one day, only to be cast into hell. What is it that you're preparing for if it's not a hope in the gospel? You were made in God's image. You were made to know him. You were made to be a righteous witness for Christ wherever you go. But instead of righteously proclaiming Christ, defending the honor of his name, not physically, but with your words, sharing truth. Instead, your life has been about defending your own honor, defending your own hopes, your own dreams, desires, and God will judge you for that because he's good. He punishes all wickedness. But there's good news. The righteous, the only one who ever was perfect, stood in your place, and God put punishment upon Christ so that when Christ took that punishment on the cross and rose again and then ascended to be with the Lord, he's now brought you near to God. If you turn away from your sins and renounce them, you let go of them, and then you embrace the truth of what Christ did here, you are brought near to God. So this is true of every Christian. So Christian, ask yourself, why do I have an objection to share the truth about God when I've already been brought near to God? It's as if your fear to share with a non-believer is a fear where Christ is standing right next to you. Better than that, he, he's in you. Holy Spirit's in you. So Peter is using this example. Christ was a faithful witness. But then he lays out two more examples of righteous suffering, righteous witness. And here, let me just give a warning. Verse 19, it's the most controversial verse in the passage and maybe even the New Testament. So listen carefully here. Verse 19, this is another example of faithful, righteous witness. Verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Okay, so did Jesus go back in time? Was Jesus in hell? What's going on here? What's the difficulty here? We know the context is talking about a righteous witness, but what is this? Well, Martin Luther, a studious monk, a reformer, he said this about the verse. A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I don't know for certainty just what Peter means. Okay. As your pastors, Ryan, Samuel, and I, we want to encourage good interpretations, good Bible study as you look at the Word. And part of what that means is with any difficult passage, we want to encourage you to let Scripture interpret Scripture, meaning we want to let the immediate context of the passage, the chapter, the immediate context of the book, and then the context of the whole story of Scripture shape our understanding. And I love it. When we do that, we can immediately see what's a plausible view and what's a, an unwarranted view about a verse like this. So three views I want to share briefly to move through the end. There's one view that is, it's not plausible. It's not warranted, but you'll hear it. It's a view that maybe a Roman Catholic friend might say to you, that this verse, verse 19, 
supports purgatory, a second opportunity to respond to the gospel. That Jesus is preaching a gospel message in hell. So that's not plausible. It's not plausible. And I'm going to share why. Even the Apostles' Creed that we read earlier in the service, the Apostles' Creed in some versions has that phrase, he descended into hell, speaking of Christ. Uh, scholars have written on this. Wayne Grudem, he has a helpful analysis. I was reading about this this week. He notated that in early versions of the Apostles' Creed, it didn't have this phrase. And even in some of the rare versions later on that did have it, it was understood as grave and not hell in the place of the word buried. It's not plausible that Christ is proclaiming the gospel, giving a second chance for those to repent in hell. It doesn't fit with the context. It doesn't fit with Hebrews 9.27. Man is appointed to die once and then face judgment. It doesn't fit with Jesus speaking about Lazarus and the rich man. You remember the story where Lazarus, he's got that great chasm fixed between him and, and glory, and he's saying, please, tell my family, tell those who haven't died. And then Jesus said, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, catch this, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. A rejection of the gospel message by normal means and normal messengers in this life is a rejection of the gospel that is damning. There's no second chance. So, we know that it's not plausible that Christ is preaching in hell. It's not a general call to, to all spirits. It's linked with verse 20. It's spirits in Noah's day. So it wouldn't make sense if Christ is preaching the gospel in hell only to a few and not to everyone else. A closing remark would be this on that view. This is why we don't recite the Apostles' Creed with that added in language, Christ descended into hell, that certain versions have. And this is why we don't affirm our Roman Catholic friends who say this is a second attempt at the gospel. It just it doesn't fit with Scripture here or the rest. So what is warranted? I know you, you want to know. What's the warranted view? Well, two others. One view is that this is a triumph message. In the Spirit, Jesus is preaching a message of triumph to disobedient fallen angels supernatural beings who live long ago as they wait final judgment. This victory message, it is plausible, but even that appears attractive only when it's isolated from this immediate context and, and it doesn't consider all of the book, all the letter, all of what Peter has said. There's another view that emerges securely, somewhat safely. I know people have questions about all of them. There's a third view that is, is persuasive. It's, it's clear. It's this. In the Spirit, Jesus preached through Noah to disobedient people as they were alive in Noah's day. And prison is where those spirits are now, awaiting final judgment. Enough of what I'm saying. Look back at the text. Let's look at verses 19 and 20. We have to connect 19 and 20 together because they are connected together in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So this is a past example of Christ proclaiming in the midst of a hostile, violent situation. It was true in Noah's day. It's true in the first century. It's true in our day. The spirit of Christ has always been about proclamation. In Jude, verse 5, in that book, it says the Spirit of Christ, Jesus, Jesus led a people out in the Old Testament, out of Egypt. But we don't even have to go to other books of the Bible. Look with me at 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 11. 1 Peter 1, 11. He's talking about Old Testament prophets inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating, and he predicted the sufferings. 
So the Spirit of Christ has already been active in Old Testament proclamation. And then we can flip over even to 2 Peter, the second letter he wrote, and look at verse 5 of chapter 2. In 2 Peter 2, verse 5, we read that Noah is a herald of righteousness. That's pretty convincing right there. The, the book of Genesis doesn't tell us all the things Noah heralded and proclaimed and announced and bore witness to in the midst of violent attack and persecution and suffering. But the New Testament says he is a, a herald of righteousness. Peter himself calls him that. So in other words, every generation has always had hostility against the message that we bear witness to. And here, Peter shows that Christ was faithful in his day. He shows Christ was faithful before his incarnation through prophets, through Noah, as an example. And he shows now that Christ is faithful for witness even today, and that's where we come in. So is it all worth it? Yeah, when was it worth it? It's always been worth it. It was worth it for Noah because you notice there, it says at the end of verse 20, he was brought safely through water. He was saved. When God told Noah to build the ark, he could have snapped his fingers, just snapped the, the ark is there. All right, Noah, hop in. The animals are already in there. Just hop in. Instead, he spoke that judgment was coming, and decade after decade after decade after decade of ark building took place, and people would come up, and they would question Noah, and they would think he's out of his mind. And here's Noah measuring the wood, cutting the wood, fastening the wood together, Securing the wood in place, covering it with, with bitumen and pitch, that, that mortar-type stuff that would make it waterproof. And here he is the next day, cutting and measuring. and fi- Day after day, decades. This is why Peter grabs this example to say, hey, Noah was faithful in the midst of hostility for a long time, even as he did monotonous things. What about your life? Does it seem pretty monotonous to go to work every day? Whether you're caring for children whether you're working at an office, a construction site, at a computer, and hostility comes at you in the midst of your monotony, you think, what in the world? Peter knows that. That's why he gives these examples. Just like Noah was brought through safely, we can see this final example of baptism. Things heated up for Noah when he began to build the ark, when his faith went public with that ark building, and here it gets intense for a Christ follower as they embark on a public witness for Jesus that that begins publicly at their baptism. So let's close looking at verse 21 and 22 here. Verse, Verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Christ Jesus. So that deluge of water that came upon Noah and he was brought safely through, That happens to a Christian. It's pictured in our baptism. Our our union with Christ is pictured. That's why he uses there that word corresponds to in verse 21. Just as the waters of judgment passed, came upon Noah, and he's out on the other side alive, he was helpless to close the door of the ark. He was helpless to make the waters recede. When someone is lowered into the waters of judgment, that watery grave of baptism, they picture being helpless because they don't, lift themselves up. Another raises them out of the water. What a picture of our faith and union with Christ and his death. Baptism is our going public. This is why Peter said, repent and be baptized, all of you, in the book of Acts. He knew that baptism alone, the ritual, the symbol, the picture, it's not salvific in and of itself. He said, repent and be baptized. I mean, there's proof there. But here, he wants to make it clear that baptism as an act doesn't save. He says it doesn't remove dirt from the body. It doesn't make you clean. There's nothing magical in the water. It doesn't take away your sin nature at that moment. He says it's an appeal to God. So this is how we know faith is involved in baptism. There's an appeal made to God. And he says that this is all connected to Christ's resurrection 
like someone is raised out of those waters. They walk in a newness of life, just like Christ was from the grave. This isn't the end of the story, though. After his resurrection, Christ was ascended. That's what verse 22 talks about, Christ's ascension. Peter had already said earlier in the letter, you don't see Jesus now. This was in chapter 1, verse 8. You don't see him. Here's the reason you don't see him. He's ascended into heaven. This reminds me of one pastor who talked about a little boy and his kite. There was a little boy in a park in a city flying a kite, and the kite went up so high the boy couldn't see it anymore. And those came up to him, and they said, Young boy, how do you know you have a kite? And he said, Sir, I can feel it tug on the string. And a pastor used that analogy to say, Christ draws us with far greater force than a mere string. But even that needs to be modified. We're not holding on to Christ and he draws us. Christ is holding on to us, drawing us into a hostile culture, telling us how to prepare, telling us how to get ready. Our fears are met with truth. We saw that. We saw the hindrances. All of the hindrances to being a witness are fear. But we don't have to fear. Christ is in authority over all created beings, all powers. That's what verse 22 is about. He's at the place of highest honor. We don't have to fear man. We don't even have to fear what we're going to say to get ready because we're called to get ready and prepare. We don't have to fear the outcome because we're told to speak gently and kindly. So brothers and sisters, take heart. Prepare to share and be a righteous witness, even though it's difficult and tough. We'll close by saying this. Martin Luther, yeah, he was perplexed about that verse, 19. But what he wasn't perplexed about is the the theme that Peter's been laying out in this passage, and it's captured in song that we are going to sing now in response to the Lord after hearing his word. Martin Luther penned these words. Though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth. We thank you for this exhortation to us. Comfort us, Lord. Pray that you'd comfort any of us who have a fear to be a witness for you. Lord, I pray that you would rebuke us, any of us who are overconfident, who are not sharing graciously. And Father, I pray that you would equip us, help us be prepared to share, to glorify and magnify the Spirit of Christ who has always been at work proclaiming truth in the midst of hostility. Help us be faithful witnesses, Lord, as we sojourn to heaven. May you be pleased with our lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.